Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, From John to Justin, which looks at Canada's political history, that releases every single Friday, and Pucks and Cups, which looks at early hockey history in Canada, and that releases every single Tuesday. I do all these podcasts full-time, the writing, the research, everything. So, every dollar you give helps keep it all going, and I truly do appreciate it, and I'll thank you on the air, throughout my social media, and at the end of each episode. If you like, you can visit my website, CanadaEHX.com, and you will find over 600 articles on various historical topics, as well as every single transcript of every episode I've ever done. You can email me at craig at CanadaEHX.com, You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Bairdo37. You can also find me on YouTube, where I put up weekly YouTube videos about Canadian history. Just go to youtube.com slash C slash Canadian History X. And remember, that's E-H-X. Now, before I get into this episode, there is quite a few Indigenous names, so I will do my best to pronounce them properly. If I mispronounce anything, I apologize. One of the most influential Indigenous leaders of the early 19th century in Canada was a man by the name of Joseph Brandt, and today I'm looking at his amazing life. Born around what is today Akron, Ohio in March of either 1742 or 1743, Brandt was born as Tha Yen Dan which means two sticks bound together for strength, to Margaret Ona Sak Irat, and Peter Tahawagawen Garak Win, who had both converted and were Protestants. According to Brandt himself, he was a descendant from indigenous prisoners who were adopted by Mohawks on both his mother and father's side. The family would leave the Ohio River area after the death of Peter, and Margaret would take her family to the Mohawk Valley in northern New York to live when Joseph was just an infant. Margaret would remarry to Carrie Hogo, or a news carrier who was a Mohawk with Dutch ancestry that dressed and lived in the European style. White settlers would call him Barnet or Bernard, which would shorten to Brandt. Living with Margaret's ancestral people, the Brandt family had distinction as she was a descendant of Chief Whitehead. In 1760, Brandt's stepfather would pass away and Old Crooked Neck took over the raising of Brandt and would bring him to a man named Sir William Johnson. 
Johnson's wife had died in 1759, and he would remarry to Brandt's sister in a ceremony that same year. In 1761, Brandt was sent to Moore's Indian Charity School by Johnson, and he would live there for two years, and his teacher, Eliza Wheelock, would state that he was, quote, of a sprightly genius, a manly and gentle deportment, and of a modest, courteous, and benevolent temper, end quote. It was there that Brandt would learn to speak, write, and read English. At the school, Brandt would begin teaching the Mohawk language to Samuel Kirkland, who would then go into the Iroquois territory to find students for the school. Brandt was such a good student that Wheelock arranged for him to go with Kirkland to the College of New Jersey, today's Princeton University, but the plan did not materialize. In March of 1763, Brandt returned home after receiving a letter from his sister stating that the indigenous there did not like him being at the school. During the Seven Years' War, Brandt served with his brother-in-law and saw action at the expedition against Fort Niagara. He would remain with Johnson for many years, serving as an interpreter. He would also help missionaries teach Christianity to indigenous people, and he would translate religious materials into Mohawk. On June 25, 1765, Brandt would marry his first wife, Margaret, who was an assimilated slave and daughter of Virginia planters. Margaret was described as, quote, handsome, sober, discreet, and a religious young woman, end quote. Together, they would have two children, Christina and Isaac. Brandt began to see that war between the colonies and England was imminent, but he and the Six Nations chose to remain neutral. In 1771, Margaret died of tuberculosis and Brandt would marry her half-sister Susanna two years later. Sadly, in 1778, she too would pass away from tuberculosis. In 1774, Sir William Johnson, while on his deathbed, asked Brandt to stay loyal to the crown. Brandt would then travel to England in 1776 to argue for Mohawk interests, and James Boswell would write of meeting Brandt, quote, the present unhappy civil war has occasioned Brandt coming over to England. His manners are gentle and quiet. He had promised to put 3,000 men in the field. End quote. Lord Geoffrey Amherst would give a dinner in Brandt's honor in England, toasting Brandt as, quote, His Majesty's greatest American subject. End quote. In response, Brandt would state, quote, Among the Indians, there are two roads to greatness. One is the warpath, and the other is the council. The Council Road is the most famous because fewest are able to travel on it. Almost any Indian can be a warrior. That is all I have ever been. Even in that, I have never been anything, but a subordinate under warriors much greater than I can ever hope to be, such as Hiakatu of the Senecas or King Hedrick, whose fame you all know. End quote. At the dinner, one woman stated that she had not expected a savage to have polished manners. Highly offended, Brant seized a bone and began to gnaw on it. He then stated, quote, you expect the poor Indian to eat like this. I'm afraid, madame, that we have different ideas of what kind of manners constitutes the savage. End quote. Prior to leaving England, Brandt was given two audiences with the king and his portrait was painted. He would return to North America after the visit, just as the American Revolution was becoming a major conflict. Throughout the American Revolution, Brandt fought with an indigenous loyalist group and he was admired for his abilities as a soldier, eventually making the rank of captain by 1780. Despite having this rank, he chose to fight as a Mohawk war chief. Sir John Johnson would explain later that being a war chief, quote, gave him command of more men in battle than was customary of a captain. The British officers who served with Brandt and the commanding officers who received reports of his military behavior always had high praise for him. 
he emerges in official dispatches as a perfect soldier, possessed of remarkable physical stamina, courage under fire, and dedication to the cause, as an able and inspiring leader, and as a complete gentleman. Brandt would raise a force of 300 indigenous warriors and 100 white loyalists to fight against the Americans. During the revolution, Brandt and his Mohawk friend, Honorate, would speak with Lord George German, the Secretary of State of the American Colonies, about the encroachment on indigenous land by settlers. He would state, quote, It is very hard when we have let the king's subjects have so much of our lands for so little value. They should want to cheat us of the small spots we have left for our women and children to live on. End quote. Germain agreed that the indigenous had been wronged, but stated nothing could be done until the revolution was dealt with. Germain would also write of Brandt's prowess on the battlefield, stating, quote, The astounding activity of Joseph Brandt's enterprises and the important consequences with which they have attended give him a claim to every mark of our regard. End quote. In the spring of 1776, Nicholas Herkheimer, a brigadier general in the American militia and a friend of Brandt's, called for him to negotiate a peace, feeling that he could get Brandt onto his side. As well, he took 380 militia to impress Brandt. Brandt would come to the meeting with his warriors concealed in the trees. He then met Herkima in a circle drawn on the ground, and asked why the meeting had been drawn. Herkima stated he merely wanted to talk to his brother Brandt. Brandt replied, quote, Do all these soldiers just come out of friendship to meet their brother Brandt too? End quote. What Brandt did not know was that four settlers were concealed in the trees ready to shoot Brandt if he was not won over. Brandt, suspecting something wasn't right about the situation, gave a war cry and immediately 500 indigenous men appeared from the trees. Brandt then thanked Herkheimer for the meeting but advised him to return home if he valued his life and to stay there. Brandt would participate in the Battle of Long Island, the Siege of Fort Stanwix, and the Battle of Oriskany. It was at Fort Stanwix that Brandt would again meet with Herkheimer, who responded to the siege with 1,000 men. As his men crossed a swamp, Brandt's militia began to attack, having been informed of the approaching army by one of his scouts. The battle was described as such, quote, Brandt's deep voice echoed and re-echoed from the woods, urging his Indians on. Like shadows, they flitted from tree to tree, many of them wearing nothing but their moccasins and vermilion, black and white paint, the high weird yips of the war whoops sounded on all sides, end quote. Herkimer would be wounded but still rallied his men while propped against a tree smoking a pipe. By the time the battle was over, 392 Americans were dead, 68 were wounded and 30 were captured, as well as 9 were missing. The indigenous lost 32 men with 34 wounded. Herkimer would die of his wounds soon after the battle. Throughout 1778, Brandt and his men would conduct raids into American territory, stealing supplies and food and burning towns. The massacre of Wyoming Valley would be pinned on Brandt, despite Brandt stating he was never there. This didn't stop Thomas Campbell from writing an epic poem called Gertrude of Wyoming, referring to Brandt. One passage goes as such, quote, The mammoth comes, the foe, the monstrous Brandt, with all his howling desolate band, these eyes have seen their blade, the burning pine. Awake at once and silence half your land. Red is the cup they drink, but not with wine. End quote. With remarkable stamina, he was considered to be an excellent soldier, and he helped inspire confidence in those who served with him. In fact, there are stories of non-indigenous fighters asking to be transferred to serve with him. General George Washington even expressed concern over the ability of the Continental Forces 
to defend New York's borderlands against Brandt and his force. Washington would develop a healthy respect for Brandt and would even try and include him in post-revolutionary negotiations between the United States and the Iroquois. He would also look to gain Brandt's cooperation by playing to Brandt's discontent with British policies. In July of 1778, Washington would write to Major General Philip Schuler, complaining about Brandt's, quote, considerable mischief from the northeast corner of Pennsylvania, end quote. He would also write to George Clinton, the governor of New York, stating, quote, to defend an extensive frontier against the incursions of the Indians under Butler and Brandt is next to impossible, end quote. During one battle, Brandt attacked the settlement of Minnesink with 60 indigenous and 27 rangers, devastating the countryside. A force of 149 Orange County men were sent out to find Brandt. Of those men, only 27 escaped alive from the confrontation with Brandt and his men. In 1779, Brandt and his men would attack the settlement of Port Jervis and defeated the militia that had been sent to pursue them. In August at the Battle of Newton, he and his men were defeated and forced to retreat under an onslaught by the American army. Brandt and his force fell back to Fort Niagara as a result, but this only increased the resolve to attack the Americans among Brandt and his men, who spent 1780 sending raiding parties into American settlements. In 1780, Brandt would marry Catherine Croghan, the daughter of George Croghan, and an Indian agent and a woman from a Mohawk family. Together, they had seven children. One son from that marriage, John, would become the superintendent of the Six Nations in 1826 after distinguishing himself during the War of 1812. After the Revolutionary War was over, Brandt began to work throughout the 1780s and into the 1790s to form a Western Confederacy made up of the Iroquois and other Western Indigenous groups in order to block American expansion into the western parts of the continent. Brandt would say on September 7, 1783, at an Indigenous council, quote, We, the chief warriors of the Six Nations, with the belt, bind your hearts and mind with ours, that there may be never hereafter a separation between us. Let there be peace or war. It shall never disunite us, for our interests are alike. Nor should anything be done but by the united voice of us all, as we make but one with you. End quote. Brandt would also write that year, quote, I always look upon these engagements or covenants between the king and the Indian nations as a sacred thing. End quote. During the peace negotiations between Great Britain and the United States, England completely ignored Brandt and the indigenous allies who had helped and gave the Americans all land as far west as the Mississippi River which was occupied by indigenous who never gave any territory to the whites prior to this. Brandt would say that England had, quote, sold the Indians to Congress, end quote. In 1785, Brandt presented Mohawk claims for war losses to the government and petitioned for half-pay pensions and to receive assurances that indigenous land would not be given to the United States. In England, he was successful in securing a pension and 15,000 pounds for the Mohawks. His visit to England was a huge affair. Lord Piercy applauded him, and he went on several trips in the country with the Prince of Wales. The Baroness of Riedesel would write, quote, I saw the famous chief, Captain Joseph Brandt. His manners are polished, and he expressed himself with great fluency. End quote. Brandt would meet with King George III and Queen Charlotte. And when the king offered his hand to be kissed as per custom, according to legend, Brandt refused, stating that he was king among his people, and it was beneath his dignity to bow to anyone. He did kiss the hand of the queen, though. At one masquerade party, Brandt showed up in a traditional indigenous costume with war paint. 
The Turkish ambassador mistook Brandt's painted face for a false one and pinched his nose to remove the disguise. In an instant, the ambassador was on the floor as Brandt stood over him with his tomahawk. Then, realizing that the man had meant no insult, Brandt immediately relaxed. Unfortunately, Brandt was unsuccessful in forming his Western Confederacy due to American opposition and, sadly, betrayal by the British who he had loyally served for so long. During his 1785 trip to London, he was given a polite refusal from the British in getting involved with any indigenous issues in a military capacity. For the next decade, Brandt would attempt to work with both the Americans and the British to secure land for his people, but treaties between other indigenous and the Americans, as well as treaties between the Americans and British, continued to undercut Brandt and his people. For the British, it was more in their interest to keep the indigenous divided and dependent. In 1792, Washington invited Brandt to accompany other Six Nations leaders to Philadelphia to meet with him and his government. Washington would write that Brandt, quote, brought the celebrated Captain Joseph Brandt to the city, with the view to impress him also with the equitable intentions of this government towards all the nations of his color, end quote. Brandt would promise to arrange peace with the Ohio indigenous, but by the time he returned back to his home, he had changed his mind. Brandt would write, quote, I was offered $5,000 down and my half pay and a pension I received from Great Britain doubled, merely on the condition that I used my endeavors to bring about peace. This I rejected. End quote. Brandt was then offered land worth $115,000 a year, a huge amount, but he would reject this and state, quote, How could I accept such a bribe? They might expect me to act contrary to His Majesty's interests and the honor of the Six Nations. End quote. Brandt eventually secured a large tract of land from the Mississauga indigenous in the area of Burlington Bay. The government confirmed this purchase and he would move to a large house on the land. But at the same time, there would be tragedy for Brandt when his son Isaac, who had a violent temper, attacked his father with a knife, wounding him in the hand. Brandt drew his dirk in self-defense, inflicting a scalp wound to his son. His son refused medical attention and the wound became infected and Isaac would die from it. Brandt turned himself into authorities but was exonerated because of his self-defense. Brandt would then lead several Mohawk loyalists and other indigenous groups to the area of Grand River in the Georgian Bay in what is now southern Ontario. This area, amounting to 2 million acres, was granted to the indigenous to compensate them for their losses during the American Revolution. Later, the government would state that the northern portion of the land had not been bought from the Mississauga people by the king, and the king could not give what he had not bought. The area would gain the name of Brantford, which today is known as Brantford. Unfortunately, the land was too small for hunting and too large for the indigenous to farm. White settlers were also moving into the area and game had become scarce as a result. In order to bring income for the people there, Brant wanted to lease or sell land to non-indigenous people, but there was dispute with the government over whether or not the Mohawk and the indigenous there owned the land that they were living on. The rationale of the Upper Canada government was that the king's allies could not have the king's subjects as tenants. Brandt would state that this restriction meant that they were only tenants of their land and they could do nothing but, quote, sitting down and walking on it, end quote. When all land sales or rentals were completely banned by the Six Nations, Brandt would state, quote, Should we be deprived of making the most of our landed property? Many must starve, many must go naked, end quote. In the end, the Upper Canada government would not concede land title to the Mohawk, and throughout his life, Brandt would fight the British and Upper Canada governments for the right of his people to have titles on the lands in the valley and to secure full Indigenous sovereignty there. 
Brandt would also live for the rest of his life in his large house at Burlington Bay, translating parts of the Bible into Mohawk. He would also become a member of the Masonic Lodge at Grand River, where he became the first master. Brandt would die on November 24, 1807, at Wellington Square in what is now Burlington. According to legend, his last words were spoken to his adopted nephew, stating, quote, Have pity on the poor Indians. If you can get any influence with the great, endeavor to do them all the good you can. End quote. His death notice, published in January of 1808, stated, quote, At his seat at the head of Lake Ontario, the terrific and much celebrated Indian Colonel Joseph Brandt, he departed this life after a short illness, much regretted by the six nations of whom he was chief. End quote. Originally buried at his home, his body was moved with his son John's remains to the Mohawk Chapel in Brantford in 1850. Along with the city of Brantford, the county of Brant is named for him, and in 1886 the Joseph Brant Memorial Statue was unveiled at Victoria Square in Brantford. There's also a Government of Canada historical plaque that commemorates him standing at the Six Nations Veterans Park. A portrait of him painted in 1807 is also in the National Gallery of Canada. In 1961, the Joseph Brandt Hospital was opened in Burlington, Ontario, and in 1972, Brandt was named a National Historic Person. I will end this episode with a quote by Brandt to Reverend John Stewart, who asked him if he preferred the white man's way of life or the indigenous way of life. Brandt would say, quote, In the government you call civilized, the happiness of your people is constantly sacrificed. Hence your code of criminal and civil laws. Hence your dungeons and prisons. Among the Indians, you will find no prisons, no pompous parade of courts. We have no written laws, and yet our judges are highly revered among us. And for what are many of your people confined? Debt. You put a man in prison, perhaps for life or circumstances beyond his control. I would rather die by the most severe tortures than to languish in one of your prisons for a single year. End quote. I hope you enjoyed that episode, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. Next week on Canadian History X, I'll be looking at Wetaskiwin on Wednesday, and then I'll be looking at the Avro Arrow on Saturday. On From John to Justin on Friday, I'll be looking at Bill Graham, and on Tuesday on Pucks and Cups, I'll look at the history of the Allen Cup. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartheau, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Biography, Wikipedia, Mount Vernon, Canadian Museum of History, Varsity Tutors, Upper Canada History, Maclean's. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.